Incredible that two days before her passing, she was on duty. How many people go to work? Two days before they exit, was it 96? Shaking hands with the 15th prime minister of her reign. I wonder if we had a pub quiz style moment at church, whether you'd remember them all. Some of you, you're that smart, you'd probably be able to list them in order. Think about it. Winston Churchill. Goodness me, this woman's reign goes far back. Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan, Alec Alec Douglas Home, very brief reign as Prime Minister. Harold Wilson, two terms. Edward Heath, James Callaghan, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and now presently Liz Truss. What a shifting journey that was. From Churchill to Liz Truss. Oh my goodness, what times she she had seen. What world-shifting changes she's seen in technology. Policy, procedures, intellect, academics, engineering. She's seen some change and shifted with it and has been this stabilizing force. As human beings, and I'll mention this a little bit more as I go on, we need stability. We're insecure with change. We'll mention this again. And there's a little bit of the insecurity provoked in all of us, maybe a lot for some of us, as our beloved queen has departed. Two days before she was with Liz Truss, this was her first public appearance since July and took place at Balmoral Castle against normal pattern. It's normally in the city, isn't it? Rather than the nation's capital, owing to episodic mobility problems, as Baku Buckingham Palace had reported, Truss was, as I've said, the 15th UK Prime Minister Actually, in all of the realms, there's something like 170 plus, Google it, prime ministers in her reign. She had a big reign. In fact, this dear lady um, was not just head over our nation, but monarch of 15 at the time of her death. And 32 sovereign states in her lifetime. She was the queen not just of our United Kingdom, but of other nations too. She's the longest of any British monarch to reign on the throne, the longest recorded female head of state in history, an incredible woman. As defender of the faith for the Church of England, she provided a spiritual covering, as I've said, over this nation, which was properly established by her deep and abiding Christian faith. Her passing with the gift of a double rainbow over Buckingham Palace was one which God demonstrably honoured. As the scripture says, precious In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Her spiritual legacy will echo in eternity as she gave herself to the ongoing proclamation of the gospel as a light to the world and as a light to her own personal faith journey. Let's briefly consider that radiant pathway of light which our late queen followed all the days of her life. I'm sure many of these things will be known to you and you'll have read them yourself since the queen's passing, but... Let's remind ourselves of what kind of, of a robust champion she was to Christian faith in the public spec to the whole world. Throughout her life, Queen Elizabeth II held her Christian faith dear. After first attending church with her parents, the Queen Mother and King George VI as a child. And she once said her religion was an inspiration and an anchor during her reign. 
when she exceeded the throne in 52 following her father's death, the then 25-year-old queen, imagine that, vowed to be guided by her Christian faith throughout her reign and asked her subjects to pray for her ahead of her coronation the following summer. In her first Christmas Day address to the nation that same year, which was in her first Christmas address to the nation the same year, which was broadcast on the radio, the monarch said, pray for me that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. What a promise. What a desire. And she has. I think it was said of Queen Victoria, we hear these things, don't we? I, I, I can't vouch for it. I wasn't present. But um, it was said of Queen Victoria that she said she looked forward to the day when she could cast a crown at the feet of the King of Kings. Now, whether that's true or not, we know that our Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, our late Queen, will have done that as Joanne prayed. What a moment where she bowed the knee to the King of Kings, King of Queens, the majesty on high. She longed for that. I remember Billy Graham visiting our Queen, and the story goes he was very well received, as Billy was by most people on the planet, but our queen had a conversation with him and he said, I was going to preach on the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, but I changed my sermon. And the queen's face lit up. She said, oh, I ideally would love you to have preached on that passage. She said, because it's my favorite in the whole of scripture. There's a woman who liked the Bible. There's lots of people who go to church every week. They don't like the Bible. understand that myself but anyway probably true but she got this love for the scriptures from her own father her own father she would notice as a child would sit every night and read a chapter of scripture every evening she saw true faith true faith is contagious and so she took her Christianity forward. There's so many stories we could tell. Let's reference a little bit the Christmas Day addresses further. She referenced the story of the Good Samaritan once and used it to ask people to reflect on how they could help their friends and neighbours who need a helping hand. She said it would be splendid to think that in the last years of the 20th century, Christ's message about loving our neighbours as ourselves might at last be heeded. As the world prepared to ring in the new millennium in the year 2000, the Queen used a Christmas Day address to honour the birth of Jesus once more. She said, today we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years ago. This is the true millennium anniversary. She didn't pull any punches, did she? <laughs> love the Queen. Did you notice I love the Queen? I, did, I, couldn't, I couldn't put my Wonder Woman t-shirt on today. I thought people would have thrown rocks at me, but one day again in the future I'll wear it in her honour, with the Queen on. You, you'd have to see it. You'd probably avoid me. <laughs> the Queen added, for me, the teachings of Christ... Listen to this, please. I was a bit flippant the last time. Listen to this bit, please. The Queen added, for me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. She, didn't, she wasn't unclear about who gave her the position, was she? I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. She used to attend church every Sunday 
when she was an infant with her parents and her sister, Princess Margaret. Elizabeth II's faith is thought to have been influenced, as I've said, by her father, George V, and she flowed in his slipstream, in his example. The Archbishop of Canterbury said in a statement following the Queen's death that she was a faithful Christian disciple. In a fuller expression of this statement, the Archbishop has also said, the Queen's trust in God and profound love for him was foundational in how she led her life, hour by hour, day by day. This is, this is somebody who had many interactions with the Queen, saw a true Christian faith. He went on, in the late Queen's life, we saw what it meant to receive the gift of life we've been given by God, and through patient, humble, selfless service, share it as a gift to others. Her late majesty found great freedom and joy and fulfillment in the service of her people and God, in whose service is perfect freedom. Forgiving, this is beautiful, close to this, forgiving her whole life to us and allowing her life of service to be an instrument of God's peace among us, we owe her a debt of gratitude beyond measure. Completely agree with the Archbishop's comments there. I personally carry the great debt of gratitude to our servant queen. She devoted, as the archbishop said, service to God and others, a spirit which is humble, it was patient, it was selfless in service, which emitted the brightest of lights. This luminary, as I've said, is gone, but a spiritual pathway is still radiant in its example, and it's encouraging to us all, all who listen, actually, to follow the same Christ at whose feet She's now laid her own crown to receive a crown of glory that will never spoil or fade. Lovely part of scripture, isn't it, that bit? She'll truly rest in peace and rise in glory. Don't you love that phrase that's been spoken of a lot in the last few days? She'll rest in peace and rise in glory. It's not just a nice thing to say when someone in her position dies. It's a reality, spiritually, biblically. So let's now consider the Christ whom our Queen followed. We're in the second week of our I Am Sayings series. Like our majesty, all who look to Jesus are radiant, the Bible says. That's why she shone. She had an anchor. She mentioned it. She used those words. She had an undying light, and she started to radiate that light, or she continued to radiate that light throughout her reign. Even with the Annus Horribilis. Do you remember that? The stability of this woman is rooted in the undying light of Jesus in whom's life she followed. And as Jesus said elsewhere in John's gospel, I think it was the Lazarus account, she did not stumble because she followed him who had the light of life. And she's now in the presence of her Lord. Let me read to you today's reading. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you view it. These are longer readings than you would normally do, but it's important to frame the context Last week was long, this week would be long, because I want you to understand where Jesus says these words and why he says these words, or you could miss the weight of why he says these words. So I'm going to read from John 8, 12 to 59. It's kind of an I am sandwich, this. You've got I am at the beginning, I am at the end, and if you were there last week, you'll know that Jesus is unequivocally saying, I'm God. And because I'm God, these traits follow my nature, my divine nature. And we know from the last study, I'm the bread of life, that not everyone gets it when he says it to them. The people in the bread of life passage wanted just food, physical food. They were distracted. The people in today's passage 
even though he's the light, they don't see and they don't understand. And he nails them on that because he's desiring to save them. It's loving confrontation. Verse 12 of chapter 8 in John's Gospel. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify of my own belief, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. They didn't get it, the spiritually blind. They asked this question. Then they asked him, where is your father? Jesus said, you do not know me or my father. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Can you see how it's laced with this repeating phrase? And that I do not do anything on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I, am always, I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, listen to this phrase, even as he spoke, many believed in him. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves to anyone. That's quite ironic, isn't it? If you know about Jewish history. How can you say that we'll be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the father's presence, and you're doing what you heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If, Abraham were, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. 
we're not illegitimate children. A little bit of a dig at Jesus there. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come from God, and I am not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46. Can anyone prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that I do not, that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they proclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, who you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. See how confrontational Jesus is. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said, and you've seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, in that long reading, the key question at the center of that piece, even bigger to a degree than the statement, I am the light of the world, is the question they asked Jesus, who are you? Verse 25, they asked. See, this is the fundamental theme of the passage. It's clear that Jesus knew who he was, but his opponents had no idea who they were speaking to. Jesus said, I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. But his opponents hadn't got a clue where they'd come from or where they were going. They were cast adrift in delusion and deception. They were saying, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, well, Abraham rejoiced at seeing my day and he saw it and was glad. God is our father, the Pharisees said. Jesus said, well, if he was your father, you'd love me. He was trying to break through their own self-delusion. You see, deception, and particularly self-deception, is like being asleep. You only know you've been deceived when you wake up from your sleep. And Jesus is saying that to them. I want you to know that a son has a permanent place in the family. That's where I'm trying to get you to. But a slave has no permanent place in the family. I want to set you free. And whom the son sets, hey, this is me, is free indeed. Now, the, the 
people, Jesus' opponents, were rooted in this idea of nationalistic pride. We're Jews, we're Abraham's children. And religious spirituality that had no output. And God is our father. It's rather like the Masonic idea. Forgive me if you've still got your feet in this area. I spoke to a Mason this week. Or a former Mason, actually. They, they pray to, the, to God above. They don't specifically say which God it is. The God of this world. But Jesus kind of confronts their sect at that time. He said, look, if you knew the creator personally, you would rejoice about me. As it is, because you don't recognize who I am, the centerpiece of this discussion, you've shown yourself to be the devil's children. He was a liar too, and you've just been duped by his lies. You see, they're trying to cling to something that is permanent, and as we'll find as we journey through this now, nothing in life is permanent apart from God. Change is the only constant we face apart from God. And so the queen's anchor, the, the luminary of our queen that said that God was her anchor, hit the nail on the head about the only thing in a person's life that is truly consistent, truly constant, unchanging, immovable. No wonder the scripture has so many different metaphors to describe God. He's an everlasting rock, it says in Isaiah in the Psalm. He's an unchanging, stable force. He's the father of heavenly lights. He lights up the way. And this is the deception that can be on unbelievers and believers alike that we put our trust in the wrong stuff. We're stabilized by the wrong stuff. We're not anchored into the divine. We're anchored into transitory things, things that are changing, things that will move. It's inevitable that things will change, even our queen. Felt like she was immortal, didn't it? I'm surprised there wasn't a golden chariot, you know, if I had come to pick her up outside Balmoral, but I wouldn't have complained at that. She's certainly up there with Enoch and Elijah and special. See, it's all about identity. You see, people have got their identity in the wrong area. We're Abraham's descendants. No, you're not, Jesus. We've never been slaves to anyone. Interesting, ironic statement in the history of Israel. Neil Anderson, Dr. Neil T. Anderson, who wrote the Freedom in Christ materials, said he really enjoys asking people the question, who are you? It really gets to the epicenter of human existence with anyone, with anyone. It sounds a simple question, doesn't it, requiring a simple answer, but it really isn't. Neil Anderson says this. For example, if someone asked me, who are you, I might answer, Neil Anderson. No, 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 Neil, that's just your name. Who are you? I, I'm a seminary professor. No, no, that, that's what you do. No, 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 that, that's your job. Well, I'm an American. No, that's your nationality. That's where you live. 
I'm an evangelical. That's your denominational preference. I could say, says Neil Anderson, that I'm five feet nine inches tall and a little over 150 pounds, actually quite a little over 150 pounds. My physical dimensions and appearance, however, aren't me either. <clears throat> Neil Anderson goes on, if you chopped off my arms and legs, would I still be me? If you transplanted my heart, kidneys or liver, would I still be me? Of course. Now, if you keep chopping, slightly macabre, <laughs> you'll get to me eventually, because I'm in here somewhere, says Neil Anderson. Who am I, though? See, it's far more than what's on the outside, isn't it? See, the Apostle Paul understood this, and he wrote, we recognize no man according to the flesh. See, there's something different for the Christian. There's a problem finding our identity in things that are transitory, things that change, things that will not last, and everything but God will not last. Human beings in our world center their identity on what they buy. See, the influencers getting loads of money for selling the face cream. Never once persuaded me to buy face cream, so these influencers, their Instagram stories or whatever else. Buy this product, get the teeth whitener. Buy these Gucci pants or this slimming underwear, whatever else they want to sell you. This will really do it. I, I, <laughs> I went on, would you believe, the reason I said I went on to Pinterest to get pictures of our queen. You know, these sponsored ads. They must be aware I'm middle-aged. So there's a gentleman pulling up. <laughs> holding his stomach in. I said, and, and the face cream didn't do it to me, but I was like, hmm. <laughs> but people, people base their identity on what they buy, where they live. Oh, I live in this place, this postcode. What they've achieved. Look at my degrees. Look at all I've done. I was a Premier League football player, don't you know? Everything is temporary who they relate to, what they know or have studied, what their vocation is, what their national and religious identity is. None of these identity markers answer the deep question, where am I from, who, who am I, and where am I going? But as eternal souls, all human beings cannot base their life on these short-lived social constructs. We have to dig a little deeper. See, the flesh we live in will not remain on this earth. We've seen that with our queen. But our souls will live on for eternity. Our beloved queen, we know, will rest in peace and will rise in glory. As I've said, it's not just the thing that we say when kings or queens die. It is a reality based on scripture. My, my auntie Evelyn spoke about fast-changing landscapes. I remember staring up at it. She was sort of... I, mean, I, I love my auntie Evelyn. I've said this from the platform before. Probably because... She'd give time. She'd give us sweets. <laughs> she took me once to buy a Manchester United badge from Wigan Market. I've never forgotten it. Do you know those little things that matter? Just remember following around Wigan Market? She bought me two bags of sweets. I was like, and then the next stall, a Manchester United badge. I thought, I like you. <laughs> she said to me, I remember looking up at her. I was in my mum and dad's lounge. I can remember it by the piano. I said, you know, Stephen, the older you get, the faster life goes. And I didn't understand it. I was only young. And 
as I've grown a little bit older, I really understand it. Some of you will understand it more than me. I can't believe my son's in high school now. Blink. And so the fast-paced, ever-changing landscape of life should be our teacher. That to base our lives on things that are transitory, things that won't remain, things that are movable, things that will rust and corrupt, to use Jesus' language, things that we can't take to heaven with us. That, you, know, you, you know, parents say stuff and you find yourself repeating it. So like, what, what, I was saying, woe betide you. <laughs> I, and it was only when I kind of studied scripture and woe is me and all that. Oh, I know what dad meant. <laughs> and one of the ones dad used to say is, no pockets in shrouds. You know, all of these, all of, you can't, can't, can't take it with you. And <laughs> all these phrases that sticks. But isn't that the truth? These truisms. You can't take it with you. And yet we build up treasure on earth. We all do it. We're all seduced by this sense of, oh, that's really important to make me, me, and I'm this. And, and Jesus said to his followers, follow me. I love the Chosen series. Have you seen it? The scene, just Google it, the scene when Matthew the tax collector follows Jesus. He's rich, hated but rich. And he's in his booth and Jesus turns on his heels. Matthew, son of Alphaeus. Yes, you? Follow me. The Roman legionary is confused. Why is this rich guy leaving his ring, leaving his scrolls, leaving his income, following a traveling wilderness preacher when he's protected and provided for perfectly compared to his peers? And Peter, the fighting fisherman, I just love the way they've done this chosen series. What are you doing? Can you imagine all these moments with Peter? Jesus was so gracious. No. I'm having a word again. He said, he said, this is different, Peter says, <laughs> Jesus. And Jesus just turns to him in the chosen series. He goes, get used to different. <laughs> and uh, and um, the tax collector follows him. But Matthew, in that moment, understood, you have the words of eternal life. This is the pearl of great price. I, I'll leave everything to follow you. You're the joy that I've been looking for. You're the desire of all nations. You have it. I need it. That's filthy rags, to quote the Apostle Paul. It's, it's nothing. To get that kind of dawn and awakening to who Jesus is, to see him as the light of the world, to follow him as our queen did, stabilizes you in an ever-shifting landscape of life. You see, to know that the world changes rapidly and that nothing is permanent propagates the human malady I've just been speaking about. See, we grasp for things to cling onto as the turbulencies of change crash onto the wooden decks of our lives. We need stability so that an ever-changing landscape of life doesn't swamp us with a sense of meaningless existence. That's why the, the king said, meaningless, everything is meaningless, because he didn't have the anchor. 
I'm sorry, it's not meaningless. In, in Ecclesiastes, he writes, doesn't it? Meaningless. Everything's meaningless. No, it's not meaningless. It's just you're not rooted in the right stuff. Remember what I said last week? Any pathway, any destructive pathway that leads us dissatisfied is missed the fact that we are divorced from the bread of life. And in this case, divorced from the light of the world. If we start to get discontent, I, I, I've had enough type mentality, it's because we've moved away from the source. We've moved away from the light that should radiate out of us. So in an attempt to create meaning, people have sought something in, in the external. They, they need, though, the, inter, the eternal, the immortality that is only found in God. You see, we try to find immortality through our achievements, our appearance, our relationships, what we set as our legacy. We, we often think of things that we achieve in life as like a jewel in the crown of life, which we polish daily. You think about great heroes like um, Alexander the Great or Leonardo da Vinci. Quite often, they, these people, if you, you, you dig down into them, they're looking for immortality through what they achieved. In the case of Alexander the Great, it was through warmongering. In terms of Leonardo da Vinci, it was through the next and greatest work of art. I want to be remembered. That immortality of Michelangelo's David is still there when I go to Florence. It was still there. He's, immor he's immortal. No, he isn't. It's a marble statue that's a good piece of artwork that we've learned to appreciate, he's gone. Immortality alone is found in Jesus. The Bible says Jesus brought immortality to life through the gospel, and this is the light of the world. See, the tragedy of this disconnected existence that we are trying to create, disconnected by the sense that we've moved away from that which is eternal, is it helps us live with a false equation. Let me explain that. The false equation is what I do determines who I am. So there are those that have and there are those that haven't. There are those that have arrived and there are those who haven't. There are those who are better, there are those who are worse. There are those who are high, there are those who are low. That's humanized. That's why Jesus' story, the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus celebrates the man with sores on his legs whom the dog licked the wounds. Do you remember that? And, and, and unfortunately, the, ri the rich man is in suffering and torment in Jesus' teaching. Jesus is trying to help his hearers wake up from this delusion that what we have in this life consolidates us and makes us something. We will, we will be surprised on that last day. We will be surprised who is ahead of us in the queue, who is honoured, who is lifted up, because Jesus' eyes see everything. And the hidden faithfulness of some will be celebrated by God and nobody ever knew. And those that have achieved greatness in this life, tethered to the wrong things, the wrong rock, the wrong anchor, following the wrong light, it's a fading light, not an unending, undying light. They, some of them will be saved by the skin of their teeth, to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. They will turn up in rags to be given riches. John, John Kemp puts it like this, the flamethrower test of 1 Corinthians 3. Give me the flamethrower, guys. I've heard John preach this. Right, what's left? What's left that I can reward? Of course our reward is salvation. We're not talking about the loss of salvation in that passage, but we're talking about what we did in this life that echoes in eternity. 
And so David was able to pray that the queen's legacy will echo in eternity. She took her seat, was his words, and she used it for the glory of God. We can do no more, and it matters not which tier we sit in. We must use our seat for the glory of God. Because the Bible says in Colossians, everything, including you, was made for the praise of his glory. That is the one reason you exist. So people say, where am I from? Why am I here? Where am I going? You came from God. You are made for God. And you're going back to God. Jesus says, I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. In him was light. And the light was the life of man. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness couldn't overcome it because light always dispels darkness. And the way we light up as believers is if we recognize what is truly important in life, which is Jesus, his church, and his eternal glory. Jesus bled for his church. And we devalue it. We all do. There couldn't have been a greater sacrifice and more given to make something. To bring many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus spilt his blood to buy you and me. That's how important you are to God. That's how important the church is to God. That's how important the sons and daughters in glory are to God who will shout his praise for endless days. We're coming close to end, you'll be pleased to know. But I just want to point out a few more things. You see, because Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going, he was aware of something that our scripture gives light to. In Isaiah 60, 19 and elsewhere in Revelation 21, 22 onwards, it says about the everlasting light that Jesus was going to, that our queen is going to. She rises in glory, literally. Isaiah 60, 19 says... The sun will no longer be the light of your day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. That's why our queen rises in glory, because he rises into the presence of the one who is light. And the Bible says, in him there's no darkness at all. Our queen served over many realms, but she's entered a new realm now. And all who believe in Christ will share in this glorious new creation because of his glorious victories in life and death. Please, this, this is important. It looks like a sidestep, but I just want to challenge you because God will hold me accountable if I don't. In the passage we read, did you notice that they, the followers were what we might call ephemeral. They were temporary. They were, they, they were temporary followers of Jesus. It says... In the passage, the Jews who had believed in him followed him. But so let's be clear these are the people they then call sons of the devil. It twice repeats that they believe in him. But Jesus doesn't count the decision cards, he's more concerned with making disciples than having adherents who like his speeches. To believe in Jesus, let's be clear, must bring a lasting heart change. It must be surgery of the Holy Ghost. It's what the theologians call regeneration. It's a grand design, if you like that TV show. It's something completely new. And without nailing my theological colours to the mast, we all know people who've fallen away. 
And this is what goes on in this passage. There are people who follow him, who believe in him, and then Jesus is then saying, you are sons of the devil. It's in the text, read it again if you think I'm twisting it. The Jews believed in him, but later he says, you belong to your father, the devil. Jesus is concerned about this. So he uses language like, I want you to have a permanent place in the family. His son belongs to it forever. The passage we read shows that a permanent place of sonship only comes through their acceptance of Jesus. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. The, the most important thing for a human being is to believe in Jesus. And the way Hebrews talks, he talks about a hardening of hearts because of the deceitfulness of sin. Some people turn and stop believing. I don't understand it. I don't want to put it in a theological box, but we've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Religious heritage, doctrine, nationalism, personal achievements, they won't achieve a dot in eternity. They'll fade when we die. So we can't cling to them. They'll have no lasting significance. Do you see those squash court heroes that you see, ex-CEOs, who were top of the pile in their business, and they can't cope with once they've been taken out of their position at the top, and they're thrashing away on a, on a, golf, on a squash court, and then they drop dead on the squash court. I, I think, personally, it's only a personal belief, some of those impressive people would last longer in life if they had a stabilizing, centering sense of their significance in spite of what they've achieved. It would bring a serenity and a peace to their journey to know their love, not because of what they do, but just because God loves them. That to God, he wants to be father to many and put his arms around everyone, and he doesn't read people like we do. The Bible says God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And the Lord's eyes are looking to and fro across the world for people whose hearts are fully for him. And it matters not whether you're a king or a queen or whether you're a pauper begging in the street. He just sees the person. Rich man and Lazarus. He sees the person beyond the flesh. He values the soul. And I think... It's important that we challenge ourselves and say, am I following, believing in Jesus and valuing him above what the world has a measure of value in this life? Because a tree will be known by its fruits. Our gods are revealed by our words and our deeds. Our priorities are revealed by how we live. My mum always used to say this thing, we always make time for what's important to us. That's worship. I think I've said enough. I'm going to skip that. But we need the light that Jesus emitted when he spoke the words, I know where I came from and where I'm going. He had the light of life in him, and our queen followed him. It's only in Christ, who is our eternal constant, that we can have light which invades our dark lives. We need to know where we've come from, like Jesus. We need to know where we're going, and we need to be certain about why we're here. 
in the middle of those two points. Everything the Bible says in Colossians 1.14 was made by God and for God. And let me finish with a reading. When you're centered on that reality that your life counts but must count for eternity, like C.T. Studd said, only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Brilliant language from a Cambridge scholar. Only what's done for Christ will last. Because this is the end point for all of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just encourage you, it's glorious, all right? Unending bliss where we're going. From light to light. Amen? And here it is. Revelation 21, 22 to 22.5. I did not see the temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. No one, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Can I just pause? i carry on reading a minute. Did you notice that phrase? The gates won't ever be shut. Let's be clear about what that scripture is saying there. <clears throat> that means in the climax of redemption, i.e. the end point of all God's been fixing through time, when he promised in the Garden of Eden that a child of a woman would crush the serpent's head and God would make things new. When redemption journey started, God was pointing to a new creation, a new God, a new temple. Let's be clear that redemption is about getting back what you lost, only better. And in the case of what I'm reading, I'll carry on reading, where we're going, all of us who believe in Jesus, it's so beautiful that there is no threat to your life. Some of you who know known the queen getting enthroned in the 50s will remember a day when you could leave your front door and your back door open, maybe go out the house. Am I being a bit romantic with that, or was that a thing? I've read about that, I've seen that. There was a loss of the sense of, a lack of the sense of vulnerability we have now. Nowadays, you go to certain places, even in middle-class pockets, and you walk a little bit faster when it's dark. There's a sense that something shifted. The world's become darker. Let me say where we're going, it's blazing light. There is nothing to threaten your life anymore. No more sickness, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, no more enemies, no more wild animals. No more wild animals that could devour you. The child will lead the lion. How exciting is that? Where we're going is glorious. God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth, and we will inhabit and colonize this new space. It's glorious. Verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure, isn't this beautiful, will ever enter it. No pornography where people are being trafficked and sold to be abused for other people's perverse enjoyment. 
No more alcoholism that destroys people's health. No more marital conflict that causes children's hearts to be ripped out. No more impurity. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's light. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, hallelujah, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them the light and they will reign forever and ever. Our late majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, will rest in peace, will rise in glory. That is her end point. She will, with the kings of the earth, take their crowns, lay them at Jesus' feet and reign forever and ever with her Lord, as Joanne rightly said earlier. You need to know where you've come from. You need to know where you're going. You need to know why you're here. And let me ask you this question as I close. Are you certain of those three things? Jesus is the light of the world and showed us the answer to all of those great questions of life. They're the only constants in our ever-changing world that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever, the eternal God that I am, who is the light of the world. Amen. I've remembered, Chris. Let's enjoy the three-minute video.
And thank you. Put everything. Just pause that. Seeing you all stand spontaneously, lovely clapping going on. That was just beautiful. Praise the Lord. Enjoy your Sunday. We thank God for our salvation in Jesus. Amen.